welcome to episode 118 of the BerlinBrigade.com podcast. I am David Guerra, former member of Alpha Company, 6th Battalion, 502nd Infantry, Berlin Brigade. I am your host for this episode of the BerlinBrigade.com podcast, and again, I welcome you. Einsteigen bitte. Okay, well, you know what that means. Let's get started. So, we've got a special treat for you today, everyone, and there's a new book coming out this summer titled Steinstücken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. That's right, Steinstücken, the Berlin Exclave. That's right. And the author of that book is a U.S. Army veteran who served during the Cold War with V Corps, Fifth Corps, as an artillery officer in West Germany. I know, I know what you're thinking. Of officer from West Germany, what could he possibly know about Steinstücken and the role it played during the Cold War? Folks, to tell you, we're going to interview him today. Uh, he's talking about this book, and it's, uh, again, Steinstoken, A Little Pocket of Freedom from Acclaim Press. Let's dive into the interview. Hey, everybody. We have a special guest joining us here today here on the BerlinBrigade.com podcast, and it's the author of a brand new book coming out this summer, 2021. Looks like it's going to be after Memorial Day, which is a good thing. Summer reading. And it's called Steinstoken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. And the author is Don Smith. But on the book, look for Donald Smith. That's the author's name on the book. So if you're looking by that. Uh, but we have Don here. Don, welcome. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to your audience. No, uh, thank you. Thank you for agreeing. Folks, it was really quick setting this up. So that's really good. So again, thank you very much. You know, sometimes when opportunity strikes, we got to we got to take advantage of it. And with that being said about opportunity strikes, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book. It's called Steinstoken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. And it talks about the exclave there in uh, just, well, technically outside of Berlin, but uh, very much, very much part of the American sector in West Berlin during the army, uh, the time of the army of occupation in Berlin. Uh, talk to us. Tell us about the book. What uh, what is the book? And then we'll dive a little deeper. Okay, the book is a history of Steinstoken's Cold War experiences, specifically its experiences with the American military and the American government. So it starts uh, when Berlin was captured and when the uh, Allies moved in and occupied the city. And it talk it focuses on Steinstoken's experiences throughout the Cold War, but it also talks about West Berlin itself because Steinstoken was a still as a, a small neighborhood. And on several occasions, the uh, US military and, and the State Department came out that, and said that what really happened in Steinstücken itself was probably not uh, strategically significant, but Steinstücken was in many ways a canary in the coal mine during the Cold War. And I think a lot of people are familiar with that metaphor where if, the, if you're in a coal mine and back in the old days in coal mines before you had uh, modern safety systems, miners would take a canary down in the coal mine, and if the canary fell over, that indicated that the oxygen levels were getting dangerously low in the mine. So uh, during the Cold War, especially during the real tense periods of the Cold War, West Berliners and West Germans were very sensitive for signs that the Americans desire to safeguard West Berlin and to live up to their Cold War security commitments in West Germany was waning. And so the Americans were especially sensitive for any kind of incidents that might let the West Berlins and West, West Berliners and West Germaners think that maybe the Americans were losing their desire. And so for that reason, they were very sensitive with what happened to Steinstücken because they were concerned that if 
Stein's took it fell into Soviet and East German hands. From that, the West Germans and West Berliners might start thinking that the Americans were getting ready to pull out. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, now this is just stuff I've picked up over the years. But is it true that the uh, the Steinstück in itself paid the city taxes, paid taxes to Berlin? Therefore, it kind of wrapped its it kind of that's how it um, kind of furthered that. Uh, how you said bringing them into the fold? Yes, they pay taxes to West Berlin. They voted in West Berlin elections, and their children went to school in uh, West Berlin, but. They also got most of their utilities from the East German gas, water, and sewer uh, organizations, especially in and around Potsdam. And, and from 1949 up until 1972, when the road was built into Steinstucken as part of the Four Power Agreement, uh, it varied whether they were uh, whether the people in Steinstucken were paying for West Berlin services or were paying for East German services. Uh, but there were there was lots of evidence that the Steinstuckeners had been viewed as part of West Berlin ever since you know the occupation began. Specifically, they voted in the West Berlin elections. Their kids went to school in Zeilendorf schools, and they they paid West Berlin taxes. Very interesting. Very interesting. So see, sometimes taxation is okay. It's kind of an okay kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it worked out really well for the people in Steinstucken because in October of 1951, when the GDR tried to take over the village and claim that it really belonged to the state of Brandenburg, uh, the American occupation authority started looking for evidence to support their claim that it was, that the village was actually part of Zeilendorf. And one of the main things they had going for them was the fact that the villagers were paying West Berlin taxes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that about sums that up. So now, now we see that there is a foundation and then there's a way in. Um, so you say the book kind of covers the history all the way from, um, uh, from the, when it was identified that it was part of Berlin and it was the, um, the commitment to mm-hmm. it. But as you also mentioned, kind of, there was no road actually connecting. There was no rail actually connecting Berlin to Steinstück. And so it kind of just stood out on its own a little bit, not that far away, but still enough to say, hey, it's, uh, if you look at a map, you'd say, oh, that, that's East Germany. Uh, how, were, uh, how, how were things happening? How were they basically getting services or, or getting anything from Berlin into Steinstück and during the time of no road in or out? Well, there was a road, but the road was not on West Berlin territory. It was a, it was an improved dirt road, and and that is the road that the Steinstucken residents had used for generations to go to and from Berlin. But that road was not West Berlin territory. That road went over state of Brandenburg territory, and that was something that both the American uh, that, that the American occupation authorities acknowledged, and that was one of the big problems that. That the Americans had with Steinstucken is that during the time of the Cold War, they couldn't legally drive to it. If they were going to get, drive on that road, for example, send MPs into the village to help out the, the, the villagers, that would have been an incident because they'd have been crossing into Soviet zone territory. And so it, the, the Steinstuckeners themselves were allowed to go back and forth by the authorities in Brandenburg, who later became the GDR. And where that created a problem was once the Cold War heated up, all throughout the, the 50s and the 60s, 
the GDR was constantly squeezing on the village uh, and creating uh, difficulties for the residents. For example, uh, there would be periods where they would not allow the fire brigade to come from uh, West Berlin. They never allowed the West Berlin police to come. And so there were no West Berlin police that were able to go to Steinstucken from 1949 up until 1972 when the road was built. Uh, if you lived in Steinstucken and you wanted to, uh, and you bought some furniture in Berlin and they wanted to deliver it to you, well, maybe the GDR would let them through and maybe they wouldn't. Uh, there were times when they wouldn't allow coal deliveries to happen. And so as you go back in the records of the uh, U.S. State Department and then before that, the American High Commission for Germany, which ran the occupation from 1949 to 1955, in Berlin, you'll see that there were American officials constantly going to the Soviets and negotiating on behalf of the Steinstuckeners. Like there's this one episode in the book where there was at one point only one person in Steinstucken owned a car and the, the border guards were constantly harassing this person. So the people in Steinstucken had to contact the West Berlin government. They contacted the American authorities. The American authorities went to the Soviets and they actually had several meetings about this one car. And it talks in the book about how they would handle uh, vehicle traffic, how they would handle uh, the delivery of coal, how they would handle the delivery of, uh, of, of items that, that, that uh, residents had purchased in Berlin. And there's this one particular case where they mentioned that the GDR decided that the minister could no longer come from Zehlendorf to uh, preach uh, services in Steinstucken because apparently the minister was obnoxious and he had irritated the GDR border guards. So they, they, they would let the doctor come through, but they weren't gonna let the minister come through. And this happened constantly during the two decades from basically 1949 to 1972 before there was an actual West Berlin road in the city or to the town. Wow, shenanigans everywhere. That's all mm -hmm. I can say. And that's really what it sounds like. It's just more like, well, we'll do it because we can. Right. And they're really, and it's kind of, uh, you know, you hear these stories and throughout times, uh, it's not just here in Steinzucker, but you hear about it over at the, at the uh, let's say, checkpoint uh, Bravo to Alpha going into mm -hmm. the West. Uh, right. Because we can, because we'll mm -hmm. delay you, we'll slow you down. And Yeah, I, I would read these stories and I'm reminded of Khrushchev's uh, statement, uh, whenever I want the West to howl, I, I squeeze on Berlin. And I got the impression that the uh, GDR and the Soviets felt the same about Steinstucken. And Ernst Ruder, who was the mayor of West Berlin uh, during the beginning part of the Cold War, he, he said that the, a lot of the things that the East Germans are doing to us are, are, are done to keep us in a state of constant tension. And so Steinstucken was one of the places they would squeeze. Wow. Heady times, definitely. Um, so let's fast forward just a wee bit and let's talk about, it's kind of like the, uh, the well, let's just call it what it is. The American U.S. forces helicopters kind of fly into the city. Forget the road. We're dry, We're flying in. Tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Well, it, it turns out that one thing that, that, that I learned by, stud, by, by studying the, 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 the story of Steinstück in West Berlin is that when the Russians, Soviets made an agreement, they tended to stick to it. And one of the agreements that the Soviets made 
in the early years of the occupation. I think a lot of people are familiar with the three air corridors that went from West Germany into West Berlin. And that was for basically high altitude airliner and freight traffic. And those were the corridors that were used during the Berlin airlift. But also the four uh, occupying powers made an agreement to create something called the Berlin control zone. And what that was is that was an area that was measured from the Berlin air safety center in the center of the city out about 25 kilometers, a radius of 25 kilometers. And that created a circle around the city. And up to about, I think like a thousand feet, the, the, uh, the wartime, the, the wartime allies had agreed that any of the allies, the occupying powers, could fly anywhere in Berlin as long as they were within that Berlin control zone area and under 1,000 feet. Well, when this was first established in the late 1940s, we didn't have helicopters. But by the time of the Berlin Wall crisis, we did have them. And so when Lucius Clay, General Lucius Clay, who was the military governor of Germany during the Berlin airlift, President Kennedy uh, sent him back in retirement to be his special representative in Berlin after the Berlin Wall crisis. So Clay arrived and he was looking for a way to take the initiative against the Soviets and the East Germans. And from the start of the Berlin Wall crisis, the Western allies, especially the Americans, had been in react mode. They had to react when the wall was being put up. They had to react when the uh, Soviets and the East Germans started threatening that they were going to close down on travel in the uh, civilian uh, airliner corridors. Uh, They had to react any time the East Germans would throw tear gas or or shoot water cannons at protesters in West Berlin. And Clay was looking for some way to change that. But at the same time, he knew he couldn't start a war. So he couldn't start a a fight. So when he arrived in Berlin, they told him about Steinstucken. And he said, okay, I want to go visit there. I want to travel there. I want to plant, reaffirm America's presence there. And so he decided that he was going to drive there. And as I've mentioned, nobody, no West Berlin authorities or no American authorities had ever driven to Steinstucken during the Cold War because of the fact the Soviets wouldn't permit it. But Lucius Clay uh, reasoned that he was an international figure He was a hero in Berlin, and so his plan was he was going to go to the checkpoint at a place called Kohlhausenbrück, which is the checkpoint that you use to get into Steinstucken, the GDR checkpoint. And he was going to go there early in the morning, surprise the two low-ranking Vopos that were on duty there, and basically bluff his way past them and get into the exclave. That was his plan. And so he told his staff, don't let the word get out about my plan. So the next morning... He drives to the checkpoint, and the mayor of Dahlem is there. His wife is there. The West Berlin Press is there. A whole bunch of kids, West Berlin school children are there. And several hundred, it's supposed, you know, quite a number of East German border guards. So Clay knew he couldn't, he wasn't going to drive there. But then he went back, and he said, okay, I'm going to take a helicopter. And so the very next day, he flew out to Steinstucken, unannounced, landed in the exclave, and in so doing, he, he created this big uproar in the press, this big fear in the press. West Berliners were thrilled. Uh, the East Germans were unhappy. The Soviets were a little miffed. Um, the British especially were unhappy because they thought that what Clay had done it was provocative. But this was one of the first examples where the Americans had really been able to push back against the Soviets and the East Germans during the Berlin Wall crisis. Up until then, we pretty much had to react to whatever they did. Well, 
Clay turned the tables on them. And one of the reasons he was able to do that is because Steinstucken was there and because of the Berlin control zone. So that was a big boost to the morale of the people in West Berlin, because when Clay arrived in September of 61, everybody was in West Berlin was looking for Clay to make a statement. And little like within two days of him getting there, he did. And so that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write about the book, because a lot of people have forgotten about Lucius Clay. I mean, he was an American hero in the 50s. Uh, but a lot of people nowadays don't know who he was. And and, and he played an important part in Steinstucken. Yeah, no, most most certainly the hero of the uh, of the Berlin Airlift, one of the mm -hmm. heroes of the Berlin Airlift. Right. And, you know, uh, earlier, you know, like almost, what, uh, 12 years earlier, give or take, or 10 to 12 years earlier. Yep, you know, like 12 years, yeah, 49. Yep, mm -hmm. 12 years earlier, and then comes back again once the wall goes up, and yeah, he shows up, and it's like, hey, look, got to do what you got to do. And mm -hmm. obviously, he he used that airlift again, so he didn't, he didn't deviate far from what... Uh, he had already had experience, so that's a good thing. And so that began kind of routine flights in and out of the uh, exclave up until, well, even after the, the road was built, correct? They were continuing right. flights? What, uh, what really started the flights into the exclave was when Clay directed Berlin Brigade to put a detachment, MP det or a, a, a detachment. I don't know if he said an MP detachment, but he said a detachment of soldiers in Steinstucken as a basically... Not, not so much plant the flag, but brandish the flag and put boots on the ground to emphasize that this, that this exclave was part of the American sector and would be protected as such. Well, the MPs couldn't drive there, so they had to fly there. So that's how the helicopter flights began, basically. That was the primary reason for the flights to go, was to bring the MPs, MPs in and take them out. But in the early stages of the Berlin Wall, when especially around Steinstuck and they didn't have a wall, but instead they just had uh, wire fencing, well, East Germans were able to get through that. And so it wasn't uncommon for East Germans to, who were trying to escape East Germany to get into Steinstucken. And then the Berlin Brigade would send a helicopter out there. And some of the MPs that I interviewed for the book talked about how this would work is that if, some, if an, a uh, refugee got into the exclave, the MPs would hide them. And then a helicopter would come out, and what they would do is they would bring out ponchos, GI ponchos, and army uniforms, and they would cut the hair of the long-haired people who would, if any of the refugees had long hair, and try to dress them up as GIs as much as possible, because they knew that the Vopos would be watching to see who got into the helicopter. So they tried to dress them up as GIs as much as possible, and then when the helicopter landed, They'd put them on the helicopter and they would fly them back. Uh, I think they would take them back to Andrews Barracks. And at that point, they would then be handed over to the West Berlin authorities. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. And yeah, no, it's uh, ingenious ways of getting things done also, you know, adjusting, mm -hmm. adapting and, and moving on with the mission. So good deal there. Um, and let's, let's take it down, let's, let's, if you don't mind, again, let's just kind of take it to the end of the, uh, well, of the, uh, well, the divided city and the wall falls and, and um, the, well, even, well, no, before the wall fell, there was that, uh, that uh, little memorial there with the, the helicopter blades. You share about that a little bit? Well, it's still there. It is a memorial that was created to honor the, the mini airlift, which the, they, the locals called the Luftbrücke. And, 
it, the helicopter airlift, and it, it's two Huey blades that are mounted inside the village of Steinstucken. And one of the things that I mentioned in the book is that Berlin Brigade built a playset for the Steinstucken children in the shape of a helicopter, and that playset is still there. It has been refurbished by the Steinstucken residents and kept up all these years. And the helicopter blade memorial is still there. It's very hard to find right now because Steins, uh, West Berlin has grown so much since the wall came down in the end of the Cold War. So Steinstucken is now just one of many, it's, it's just a part of the big Berlin megalopolis. So you have to know where to go find it. But if you go to Steinstucken, you'll see it there. And there are, uh, I think it's mostly former military that go there and see it. But that's one thing that we wanted people to know about when I wrote this book is that I've talked with some of the aviators that were part of the uh, airlift and also were part of the ongoing friendship between uh, the American military and the residents of Steinstucken, which I, I mentioned in the book. And one of those aviators said that as far as they know, that, that is the only American memorial within West Berlin. There's a bunch of allied memorials, but not American memorials. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's another reason that, I, that that's something that I wanted to mention in the book is that there is a memorial there to the American presence and the American activity, specifically the uh, air bridge into Steinstucken. And, and hopefully when people go, they'll get when they go to Berlin and hopefully uh, they will get a chance to go over there and take a look at it because it said the uh, residents still maintain it. Uh, a few, about two years ago, uh, it was damaged when uh, one of the retaining uh, bolts on the blade broke. And so I got a, a picture from the residents of, of one of the blades hanging at an angle, but the Berlin Fire Brigade came and fixed it right away. And they do a pretty good job of keeping it up. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yes, I, I have a photo that I took back when I was there in uh, 87. I left. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, it's one of those things that you just I rode the, the bike out there because you could back then when I was there. Right. And uh, yeah, it just comes. It's it's upon you. I wasn't expect. I knew there was a memorial out there for it, but I didn't expect to see what I saw. And so mm -hmm. it's one of those. It's not one of those huge imposing, but it does stand out because it's like you're not expecting to see Huey chopper blades right there, but there they are. Then you read the little uh, bronze plaque there underneath in German and mm -hmm. English. Really nice. And glad to hear that it's still there. Very happy to hear. Right. That and and, and the, the small street that it is on was renamed by the West Berlin government uh, on Landa plots to, to commemorate the fact that uh, that's where the, um, that's near where the helipad was. Obviously, the helipad is no longer there. It's been covered over by new construction. But if you go to the memorial, you look around, you'll see a street that's called Amlandaplatz. And that was that to the landing site, to the airfield. Wow, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, a couple of things, a couple of other questions. Let's just kind of uh, go off a little bit. Uh, the book. So when did you start? When did you start? Let's just say I have the idea. When was that? And then, you know, to get to this point that we are today. Kind of it was it was 2014. It has taken me seven years to do this, and, and because obviously I've been working full time, I'm not retired or anything. Uh, and uh, but it, it, it's taken a lot of research, and I've had a lot of help from the Steinstucken residents, and from MPs, and from aviators 
who were part of Berlin Brigade. And I was also able to uh, find records from the State Department. The State Department has a wonderful book, or uh, there's a, actually there's a State Department Associated Organization called ADST, I believe it's for the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. And it's, it's not a State Department organization, but it's affiliated with the State Department. And one of the things that they do is they interview uh, State Department veterans. And there is this wonderful German country reader that's free, and it's got about a thousand pages in it, more than a thousand pages actually. And it has interviews for, of, from people who were in Germany with the State Department from World War II up until the, uh, the wall coming down. And so I've, I've, uh, as I've been doing my research, it's taken me years to find all the information out there that, was, that uh, went into the book, but there's a wonderful a wealth of information out there. Uh, for example, the, uh, the American occupation government, uh, and from 1945 to 1949, it was called AMGUS, Office of Military Government U.S. That was the Army-led military government. And then in 1949, they switched over to the American High Commission for Germany. That was a State Department-led organization. Nickname was the HICOG. And they have, uh, and they were constantly putting out information bulletins, information papers, because they wanted to explain to the American people why it was important to maintain the occupation. So, and to support the occupation, especially as we get into the 50s and the Korean War started and the American people are looking to cut costs, one of the things the High Cog was doing was trying to convince the Americans to continue to support the occupation. And so they wrote all the, they had this, they would put out a monthly information bulletin. They wrote all these, all these position papers and that information is out there now. It's public domain. And so reading that, I learned a lot about Steinstucken and also the history of West Berlin and it's taken a long time to work through that. So the book's over 300 pages, uh, got uh, 64 pages of pictures in it. Some of them have come from the Steinstucken residence. Some will come from the Berlin archives. Some will come from the U.S. government and some will come from former military who were there. Uh, but it's taken about seven years to put it all together, but we're about ready to wrap it up now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, it'll be on all, all how do you say, books? book uh, services, uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any place that they sell the book, you will be able to find it there? Yeah, the, the publisher's name is Acclaim Press. And Acclaim is a small commercial press that works out of Missouri. And they do a lot of work with uh, U.S. Army organizations. For example, it was uh, the MP Regimental Association that referred me to Acclaim Press. And Acclaim Press, will, well, the book will be available on their website. But we're also anticipating it's going to be out on Amazon and Barnes and Noble as well. So yeah, you should be able to go to the normal places that you would go to buy books online and find the book there. The book is titled Steinstucken, A Little Pocket of Freedom by Donald Smith. And we're talking with Don uh, today here on the BerlinBrigade.com podcast and uh, sharing his insight on, on the book and, and what's, what it took to put it all together. And he shared a, a, a lot of information about what's in the book. It's kind of like uh, our own little mini uh, audio book that we just got here. So again, thank you for that, uh, uh, Don. Um, anything else in the works? Now, I know, I know, right? You're not actually done with this one, but they're already asking, Is there, what's next? What's next? What have you got? Well, what's next? Well, what I want to do is once the book is, is, is published, 
the the book is written mostly with uh, sources from information from U.S. government uh, records and also personal interviews with Steinstucken residents, State Department people, and American soldiers who were there. But there is undoubtedly a wealth of information about Steinstucken that is in the West Berlin City Archives, the now declassified East German Archives, and also there's probably something in the Soviet Archives. So what I'm hoping to do is, if hopefully the work will be achieve some level of success, I can then go and try to approach some universities or try to get some separate funding. And there are researchers and archivists in Berlin that can go to these archives, find out what the West Berlin city government was saying about Steinstück and find out what the East German government was saying, and then translate those documents. And then ideally I'd like to put out a revised version that has both the East and the West side uh, version of what happened in Steinstücken. Ah, yes, two different perspectives, or mm -hmm. three different perspectives, I guess, just depends on how right. much data you get. And Especially if we get the Soviet data. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. That'd be very interesting to read and, and kind of get that, um, peel back that layer, mm -hmm. peel back that layer without a doubt and see see really what was going on and see just like, again, maybe all in, all it all comes out to be is because we could. Mm -hmm. Might just be the only answer. Could be, but it's a fascinating story, and you, you used the metaphor of peeling the onion. And uh, as I've been studying the story, you just uh, you learn so much about the American experience in Berlin, and also the uh, the importance that Berlin had to the American government. And that's one of the things that I, I point out in the book is that when many many people think about West Berlin. They think of it as a burden that the Americans had. We had to go in there and take care of the West Berliners. And so this is a burden we had to bear. But there were several uh, times that West Berlin turned out to be a benefit for the Americans, especially during the Cold War, when we're fighting the, the, the battle of hearts and minds to try to win over Western Europe and the third world and the countries that had formerly been European colonies and now were becoming their own standing nations. Uh, they were after World War II, and, and they were looking at the Western capitalist free world way of life. They were looking at the communist way of life, and trying to pick beside, which, try to determine which one to follow, which one to favor. And as as the people who read this, uh, listen to this podcast, are well aware of, one of the big strengths that the Americans had is the fact that they had West Berlin sitting in the middle of Soviet territory, which is basically a beacon of Western success surrounded by, you know, Eastern mediocrity, if not misery. And one of the things I talk about in the book was there are several times besides the Berlin airlift, when uh, the West Berliners stood up to the communists and the whole world noticed. And that caused the, the Soviets especially to take some PR black eyes. And so one of the things I like to remind folks about is that uh, while West Berlin was a burden for the Americans during the Cold War, it was also an asset. And that's and, and the book explores some of the uh, some of those episodes, like for example, the 1946 city elections, which were the first elections held in Berlin 
after World War II when basically you had the communists and the Western parties competing with each other. And the world viewed that as a referendum on which way of life was better, uh, the Western way of life or the communist way of life, because the West Berliners had had a chance to live under both. And the West Berliners ended up picking the Western parties by a huge margin. And that was very embarrassing for the communists. And that was one of just several times where West Berlin turned out to be a benefit for the United States. And so I wanted to cover that in the book as well, because Steinstucken was important, but Steinstucken was important because West Berlin was important. So for, especially for those people that don't know a whole lot about West Berlin's history, I wanted to cover some of that in the book so that you could get a fuller understanding of why Steinstucken itself was important. Excellent. I applaud you for that, sir. Yes, uh, as we get further and further away from those times, uh, it's the, um, well, the message kind of gets obscured. It kind of gets lost mm -hmm. in the haze. And glad you're bringing this up, the story up. And again, yes, it is, it is part of Berlin, which is part of the world, which is part of the post-war world. And again, the message needs to be reinforced from time to time that, hey, what we did there was good and it was there for a reason. So again, I applaud you. Thank you for for taking the time to write the, the book and then collecting all this, all this information is this knowledge that you've just increased yourself with over the years. That's awesome. It was my pleasure. Yeah. And it's going to be ours as we read it. Cause I'm already, you know, you've sent over just a couple, just real brief content. And I'm like, I want to dive into more. I cannot wait for it to be published and I will definitely be on the lookout for that. And we'll also share that link on the website as that's made available, not just on the uh, page. I won't just update the page later on or the, uh, the podcast page, but I'll also put it up there in, in one of our links section. And uh, that way we can get that, get a copy of this book and definitely look forward to that. Are, are you already preparing a, a uh, tour on the book? A speaking tour? Are you working on a speaking tour yet? Well, We've got some places that, we, that we've identified. The question is going to be whether we have funding to go to those places. But there are definitely, uh, there's a few places that uh, we're going to try to set up book signings. Uh, one of them will, will undoubtedly be in the Washington, D.C. area because there's so many people, uh, so many Berlin veterans that live in that area. I'm hoping to go over to uh, Berlin itself. I've never actually met the Steinstucken residents. I've uh, I've corresponded a lot with them by email, but I'm looking to actually have a chance to meet them. Uh, and so we're hoping to set up at least one book signing somewhere in Germany, if we can find the funds for that. Uh, and But we're also uh, thinking of, well, we're looking for places, we're always looking for recommendations for places where we can go do a book signing. And if I can get there, I will be glad to do anywhere in the country. If I can get there, I'll be glad to do a book signing, bring a bunch of books with me and uh, talk to people about this unique episode in American history. And I'm over there talking and I think I had the microphone on mute. I do apologize. No problem. Yeah, you, you, you dropped out for a, about a minute there, but no big deal. Okay. No, what I said is, um, I guess uh, what I was getting at was... Um, Kind of if you have anything that you wanted to say, you didn't get a chance to say, but it's like, oh, it, maybe you took, you had some notes, a couple of topics you wanted to cover, you didn't get a chance. This is now your opportunity, sir. Hey, I'm, uh, actually, no, I feel we've, uh, I guess when people ask me, why did you write the book or why, why is the book worth picking up? I tell people that th this story is a unique story. 
Uh, now, Berlin, West Berlin itself is a unique story, but this is a unique story within a unique story. It's an interesting story, and if you think about it, when you think about the situation of this exclave where you had people who every day uh, went to school or work in West Berlin and had to clear two GDR checkpoints and cross over Soviet's own territory, just undoubtedly all sorts of interesting episodes were going to occur, and they did. And, and so another reason I wrote the book was so that these stories wouldn't get lost. And one of the things the Steinstokener said is that most of us that were here during the Cold War were, were starting to pass away. We don't want our stories to be lost. So this is one way for, for them to record their stories, and that's what the book does. And uh, also, I, w- one of the reasons that I like the story of Steinstokin is that it's a case where the U.S. government and the U.S. military did the right thing instead of the easy thing. And what I mean by that was in October of 1951, when the GDR tried to take over Steinstucken, there were less than 200 people that lived in the, vil- in the vil- village. And for anyone who knows anything about the history of the Cold War at this time or the history of Germany, uh, Germany was going through massive disruptions. There were, in, ni- in late 1951, there were millions of refugees that were being expelled from the Eastern European countries, people of German uh, uh, ethnicity that were being absorbed into West Berlin and West Germany. It, it was a time of ongoing turmoil, and Steinstucken had no military significance. There was no power plant there or, or water treatment facility or anything that West Berlin needed. It was just a bedroom community. And the the U.S. commandant in Berlin could have justified, yes, I know it might have been it created a, political, a, a PR black eye, uh, it might have led the West Berliners to get upset if the Americans had abandoned the village. But honestly, the U.S. commander of Berlin could have looked at the West Berlin mayor and said, look, I cannot send my soldiers out there to protect this village unless I'm willing to start World War III, which I'm not willing to do. I'm sorry, but let's be practical here. Let's move these people inside West Berlin where we can protect them. And I think the West Berliners would have had to accept that because that was a practical, rational argument. But instead, the Americans stood on principle. Uh, yes, they, yes they, part, part of the reason they did it was to avoid a PR black eye. But they stood on principle and said, nope, we are here to protect the American sector of Berlin and that little pocket of people over there, a kilometer away from the West Berlin border, uh, is part of the borough of Zehlendorf. And Zeilendorf is part of the American sector. And the SARS were concerned that's American territory. And so the U.S. commander of Berlin put his foot down, held firm, which is what Lucius Clay kept telling the American government to do whenever there were pressure in Berlin. He said, if you assert your rights, if you stand up to the Soviets, in most cases, they will back down. And this is an example of that. So we did the right thing instead of the easy thing. And that's another reason I think this story deserves to be remembered. Oh, wow. Yes. And every day, I mean, those of us that were there every day was that, you know, we're here for the right reason. I don't think anybody I ever served with while we were there ever thought we were there for the wrong reason. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's always the right reason because we believed in what we were doing. We believed as soon as, and that's the one thing I was going to say earlier, when you make it back, when you make it to Berlin, when you go meet a Steinstucken, a citizen of Steinstucken or or a citizen, a Berliner, uh, the moment you shake hands with them, they're your friends forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one you'll just get to see this this um, wonderful group of people, and uh, 
the ones that supported us while we were there, the ones that kind of, eh, but they're still great people. And to this day, I still firmly believe in, in the greatness of, of the citizens of Berlin because we were all in it together then. And, you know, not so much now, <laughs> but even then, you know, we still have that common bond. And, right. Uh, you'll see that once you get there. I guarantee it. Oh, I've, I've been to Berlin three times myself. Okay. Oh, was, okay. Yeah, I've been there. I, I was in Fifth Corps Artillery in Frankfurt from 1986 to 1989. And so I had an associate that was in Berlin Brigade. So I went to visit him twice. And then <coughs> my battalion took a professional development tour to Berlin so that we could see the wall. And my battalion commander said, if you want to understand why you're here in, your, in Germany, you need to see the Berlin Wall. So he took all of his officers and their spouses up to see the Berlin Wall. And then as part of that, we took a bus tour to Steinstucken. And the guide said, I'm going to take you someplace that's really unique. And so we're riding the bus. And all of a sudden, we turned down this little road. And there's this, brand, there's this relatively new paved road that we're going down, a small country lane. And on both sides of it was the Berlin Wall with the wall and the watchtowers. And... You're, it's like you're going down this this tunnel to, to some place in the distance, and our jaws just fell open because we couldn't imagine what is at the end of this road. We got down there, and it was a little village, just like the village that we all lived in, in and around Frankfurt. And the, and then that's when I learned the story of Steinstucken. And so uh, in 2014, when I decided that I wanted to write a history book, it's something I'd always wanted to do, I looked around, and I found that there was no current history of Steinstucken in English. There's one in German. It was written in 2005. It's called Insel, I'm going to butcher the German here, Insel uh, von der Insel, an island within an island. And uh, so that is a relatively current history, but it's all in German. So I said, well, I'll write an English language history. And that's what brought me here. Well, good deal. Outstanding. Okay. Well, then you already know what to look for. Good deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Most excellent. Um, Listen again. I want to thank you for your time. Uh, all this this great conversation, and I know you did most of it, which is a good thing. And I think the audience agrees um, that I did less. But again, I definitely want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you for reaching out. And yeah, I, I mean, it, I look forward to the uh, once we start getting that pre-sale information, we'll definitely get it up on the on the website and okay. start sharing it on our on our social media pages, without a doubt. And we are looking forward to this book being released. So please, if you don't mind, stay in touch. Let us know when you know a date. That way I can kind of share it with everybody when you're, you know, because I, I understand there's things that still have to happen. Um, so, uh, but without a doubt, thank you again, Don Smith, the author of Steinstucken, A Little Pocket of Freedom and by Donald Smith. So again, thanks a lot, Don. And um, again, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm humbled. Thank you. I appreciate everything you've shared with us and uh, good luck with the book. Hope it's on that New York times list. I, I hope so too. And I want to thank you for this opportunity uh, to tell the story of the book. I want to assure everybody that I've shared a lot of information with you, but I've just scratched the surface of what's in the book and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So, uh, so thanks again for this opportunity and we'll be talking soon. And now the time has come to wrap up episode 118 of the BerlinBrigade.com podcast. Again, before we go, I want to take this opportunity to again thank Don Smith for joining us today. And we look forward to the publication of Steinstucken, A Little Pocket of Freedom, sometime this summer. 
He hasn't finalized it, but he did assure me that he's going to share that date as soon as he gets it. Also, I want to thank everyone that supports the website and this podcast because all activities at the BerlinBrigade.com podcast are supported through the generous donations of listeners like you. So again, thank you very much. And those donations certainly help when it comes time to pay the bills for BerlinBrigade.com, the hosting, the up, all of that. So again, and if you have not donated, please consider donating. And you can donate through the PayPal donation buttons at the bottom of the BerlinBrigade.com homepage and at the bottom of the BerlinBrigade.com slash contact page. It's all down there. It's real simple. And if you're interested in being a guest, again, I invite you. Uh, just all I ask is drop me an email and we'll get the logistics all sorted out and off we go. And oh, yes, one other thing. Again, I do invite you that uh, to visit the website. And if you've submitted your registry information, please check in, make sure it's up to date. Uh, that way we're, we're staying current and people can locate you. So without a doubt. And again, everybody, listen, I want to thank you. I am David Guerin. I thank you for listening. Danke schön. Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss. Endstation. Bitte alle aussteigen.